0: So, um, we missed a Wednesday, and I had this book outlined, and we're heading into, it was to coincide with the King Me series. So, what that means is, I was going to do 11 chapters on two Wednesdays, and now I have one Wednesday to do 11 chapters. So, that means either I need to do uh, snow makeup, which would mean we go till 9.30, but um, I love you and the kids' workers, and I don't want a bunch of bent three-year-olds coming in here and, like, hanging me. So uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going d- I'm, I'm to go pretty fast, 30,000-foot view. Check out what I say. Um, I'm just going to kind of drop seeds, and then you can see what you think about the seeds that I drop. Um, these chapters, it's, it's kind of like this. Who here has watched the movie... Gone with the Wind. Ah, look at that. Still a well-watched movie. What, 1939, I think, or something? Maybe it's not that old. 1950? What is it? 39, I was right, yeah. So, old movie. I watched it when I was about 11, I think. And uh, if you know the ending of it, uh, Scarlet's trying to get back Rhett Butler, right? So the end scene is, Rhett Butler says to Scarlet, I'm taking off. I'm leaving you. And so she says, well, what am I going to do? What's going to happen to me? And he replies, frankly, my dear, I don't give a dance. You thought I was going to say it, huh? No, no, I won't. (laughs) And that's the end of the movie. And I remember as an 11-year-old, I was just ticked. I'm like, what? Like that, you're leaving so much loose here. It was the first movie that I ever remember where things were not and they lived happily ever after. There was no kind of summation. There was no like fi- final kind of solution. It was, well, oh, well, are, do they get back together? Don't they? Like there's all these questions that remained. I hated it. Hated that. Like I don't like that. I want it tight. Well, Ezekiel's a lot like me because he wants to sum up all the loose ends. So what we've seen in chapters one through 37 is essentially this. Ezekiel says, Jerusalem and the temple are going down. And it happens. And then what you have is hope begins to come in. Chapter 34. There's this hope that there's going to come this shepherd king who's going to be a really, really, really outstanding individual. In fact, he's going to be God. Chapter 34. So you've got hope about a coming shepherd king. Then chapter 35 and about half of chapter 36 is not only is there going to be this new restored king who's going to be really good, but you're going to be given back your land. Well, that's cool as well. But then even gets better because the last half of chapter 36 and all of chapter 37 is humans are going to be remade. New heart, new spirit, new ability to follow me. Instead of, your continual failure and failure and failure in life, I'm gonna transform the very center of your desire and your will. I'm gonna give you a new one. The dried bones that you just feel like, man, I am just a graveyard of mistakes. I'm gonna resurrect them. I'm gonna breathe into them life. My Ruach's gonna come into them. So there's all this like, yeah, that's so awesome. But there's two loose ends that, are, that remain. And the two big loose ends that cover the rest of this book is this. What about evil. What about all the rest of evil? Okay, you've taken care of kind of us, but there's still a lot of evil out there. So so what about evil? And then the other question is this, what about God? Because if you remember in chapter one through 11, those chapters, God essentially packs up his stuff from the temple, remember that? And he leaves chapter 11, I'm out of here because of the idolatry, because of the sinfulness. God packs up. His spirit descends out. It goes out through the eastern gate and heads to Babylon, essentially. I'm leaving the temple. So the second question is, well, God, are you coming back? Where are you at in this? Are you going to be with us again? So those are the two loose ends. And Ezekiel, not like God and with the wind, is saying, I, I, we're going to have an ending to this book. And then there's this radical twist at the end that's just brilliant. So Chapters 38 and 39, evil. And here's how I look at it. Evil is eliminated. So I'm going to read a little bit of these verses. I can't read them all. You can, and I recommend it. So I'm going to give you a seed of what I think is happening. Chapter 38, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, Set your face toward... Now, a lot of people pronounce this Gog. It's actually Gog. It, wrote, it rhymes with vogue. So it's Gog. Gog. Set your face towards Gog. Of the land of Magog. Magog just simply means... May is, is a way of saying the land of Gog. So he is Gog of the land of, land of Gog. The tree, chief prince of Meshach in Tobal and prophesy against him and say... Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will bring you and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togomar from the uttermost parts of the north with all of his hordes. Many people are with you. Then chapter 39 is going to sound almost identical. Look at verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples that are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be to be devoured. And you shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog, on those who dwell securely in the coastlands. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. Now, if you've read these chapters, there's more detail, there's more stuff. But essentially, I'm just gonna try to give you what I believe it is, because you can get buried in some details. Like is Meshach and Tobal, is that Russia and Moscow? Um, is Gog Putin? It must be Vladimir Putin, no, it's Barack Obama. He's going to leave the United States, go in Russia. And, you know, there's all these conjectures that happen, and a lot of people do that. But I want to give you just the, the what, if you look at the flow of Ezekiel, here's what he's trying to do. He's going to say here in chapters 38 and 39, evil's going to be eliminated. So there is this massive battle, this big, massive battle. And if you look at chapter 38, verses four, five, and six. And you look at the direction of each one of those nations, it's north, east, south, and west. They're coming from every single direction. And there are seven nations mentioned Meshach, Tabal, Persia, Cush, Put, Gomer, and Beth Togarmah. There are seven nations. Seven in the Bible is always completion. So what it's saying is there's gonna be this complete attack from all these nations. And they're coming with this guy named Gog. So who's Gog? I think there are two options. There was a historical guy. He's actually the king of Lydia. Right before Ezekiel's time, he got a confederacy of nations together and they actually led a rebellion against Babylon. He's a feared dude. He was fearsome. He's bad. He's all that kind of stuff. So he was well-known as this guy that rallies people and revolted against Babylon. So some people say, that's what it is. The second idea is that there's this king, we call him King Og, but the actual pronunciation is Og, King Og of Bashan. And if you know the story of Israel, when they leave the promised land, they come to this guy and he's really the first dude that stands against them and wants to destroy them. And in Deuteronomy 3.11, it tells us that he's a big dude that his bed is actually 13 feet by five feet. That is a massive bed. And he is the last of the Rephaim. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, translates Rephaim as giant. So there is the idea that it's not a tribe of people. He's actually a giant. He's the last of the giants. And he, Og is known in this area. So the Phoenicians have a reference to Og as this fearsome, crazy giant. Jewish literature started to have all these kind of myths about Og, not not in the Bible, but their own kind of myths. One of them was this. When Israel fought King Og of Bashan, he was this massive dude. Nobody could take him out. It's like Lord of the Rings or something. And Moses takes this pole, 10 cubits long, a cubit is 18 inches. So that thing was 15 feet long. And he literally pole vaults over to Og and then takes him out of his feet with the uh, pole vault. So i are like, okay, <laughs> no, that's not in the Bible. But there's just kind of the stuff that gathered up about this guy because he was that kind of a fearsome, terrible leader. We had the same thing. We do that. We, we have myths around our leaders, don't we? I'll give you one. George Washington, given a hatchet by his dad went outside, what do you do? Down a cherry tree. And then his dad said, who chopped down the cherry tree? And George Washington said, father, I chopped down the cherry tree. And George Washington's dad gave him a big hug. Thank you so much for being honest. Okay. Is that fact or false? It's a fact, <laughs> it's a fact when I'm talking to my son, no doubt about it. You want to be president? Be like George Washington. Tell me the truth right now. Who ate the cookie? Did you? <laughs> it's, 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 it was made up right? So there's a book. It's in the fifth edition of the book. Uh, So it wasn't there. It wasn't there. And then the guy started embellishing and added on more stories about George Washington to make him bigger and bigger. So Moses, same kind of thing. So what had happened to King Og of Bashan was he became this kind of like, look out, this is a massively bad dude. So Og, my thought, is evil. Gog is evil embodied. It would be like me saying this, Isis, found the remains of Hitler, and they've cloned him, and they've started the Third Reich again. All right? That would be terror for us. Like, are you kidding me? We have to face this again? It's that idea. It is, here's the worst leader. He's coming, but it's more than physical. See, there's something behind Og. There's something behind Gog. And if you look at chapter 39, look at verse 18. And if you've been with me for a while, this might ring a bell, it may not. It says this, you shall eat the flesh of the mighty, the Gabor, which has a long history to it, that word, and drink the blood of the princes, the Nasir of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. So, If you were here when we went through the cross, Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You read Psalm 22, you realize it is a very prophetic picture of crucifixion. In verses 12 and 13, it says that on the cross, that there were these bulls of Bashan that were leering. They were like ravenous lions at the cross. And there's this question Bible people have, what in the world is that? What's a bull like a lion, of Bashan that's ravening at the cross? What in the world is that? Well, Bashan in the Bible, if you look at it, especially in the Psalms, um, it is compared to Mount Sinai, which is the Mount of God. And Bashan is considered to be like the Mount of Evil, Like Jerusalem and Babylon, Jerusalem is God's place, Babylon is evil's place. Well, Mount Sinai is God's mountain, Mount Bashan was evil's mountain. So King Og is the king of this mountain, he's a bad dude. And here you see another reference back to Bashan. So this is more than just a physical entity, This is a satanically inspired leader that I'm convinced Revelation colors this in for us. And At the end of days, there's going to be this dude called the Antichrist who's going to rise up, be empowered by Satan, and there's going to be this final conflict. And in this final conflict, here's what's going to happen. If you look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 39, it says, I will turn you about verse 3 I will strike your bow from your hand. Verse 4 I will give you to the birds of prey. Verse 6 I will send fire on Megog. What it's saying is God is going to take care of this evil dude. Don't be afraid of him. Doesn't matter what is ent- doesn't matter if he's Bashan, doesn't matter if he's wh- whoever he is, he's evil, he's terrible, but God's going to deal a death blow to him at the end of days. And it's pointing forward to Revelation 19 and 20, where you see the same references to Gog and Magog. They're there. And then it says at the end of that, God just wraps up everything that is evil. He, if you would, crumples it up and he throws it into this place called the Lake of Fire. He destroys it by fire. Evil is eliminated. Isn't that so hopeful? That one day, all this junk, all this stuff that just pains us, One day it's going to be wrapped up and thrown away. It's beautiful. So God's going to eliminate this evil. And I'm happy about that. If you're not, you're just not paying attention. Because there's just a lot of brokenness. I was talking to a really dear saint a while back. And she told me something that it's been just like kicking around in my brain, like those things do. But she told me on New Year's Eve that they have this thing where the the first baby born in the new year it's like this special baby and it's the first baby born. It's just a cool thing and they, they kind of, they celebrate it. Uh, the Daily Courier does a story on the baby. Uh, the family's given all this kind of stuff. It's just, it's celebration, it's awesome. Well, this year, the first four babies, they couldn't celebrate because a couple were born addicted to drugs. One of them, DHS came and took the baby. And one of them, the dad was arrested right on the spot there as the baby was born. I just heard that in my heart, man. It just breaks. There's just evil. People are being deceived. The bulls of Bashan are still there. And I can't wait. I say, Jesus, come quickly. Take all this evil, all this stuff that's ripping off your people, destroying them. Take it and throw it away. Well, what's he waiting for, you may ask? Why doesn't he do it now? I mean, come on. 2 Peter 3 9. God is patient so that everyone can come to repentance. Because God wants those four newborn babies that couldn't be celebrated, He wants to celebrate them. And He wants to grab them up and bring them into His kingdom and for them to be saved by Jesus Christ. That's why He waits. So He's waiting. Perfect time. When that perfect time is, boom. And right now, you know what we do? You know what we do? We push back against darkness all that we can. It's overwhelming, when you think about the size of it. Like, oh, there's too much to do. But you and I can do it with one person. We can do it, we can shed a little bit of light on one person. And I had already, I had already written this message. And today we needed to go with uh, to court because of the foster kids in our care and, and kind of present our side to the judge. So we're there and we we had Elijah, he's my nine-year-old with me, and he's just sitting there like, oh my goodness. Like, how long is this gonna take? And and the bailiff is there and he's got all his gear and he's just a big, giant bailiff. And the bailiff kind of looks at Elijah and and he leaves, comes back. And then as we're sitting there, just waiting for this stuff to go on, and it's heavy stuff and you're just heartbreaking a lot of it. He, He pulls out this little Hershey kiss and he sets it right on the rail for Elijah. And Elijah just breaks out a big smile, grabs it, puts it in his pocket. And then he pulls out another color one. Sets it on the rail. Elijah, I said, you better give that to your mom. He goes, "Mm -mm." (laughs) mm-mm, in his pocket. Pulls out a third one. I think he actually had one for each of us. Elijah ended up with all three. That's what you see. Just shine a little light in darkness. You just do what you can. You keep doing it. Trusting Jesus will take if you give a cup of cold water to a child. That's going to matter. We keep doing that. We keep telling people, Jesus is the answer. You've got to come into his kingdom. Look out. This kingdom is broken And one day it will be demolished and taken apart and there will be a new kingdom. But right now you can participate with your king in a new kingdom right now. We keep on saying that. So loose end number one, Ezekiel is saying, God's gonna deal with it. He'll do it. He'll strike their bow. He'll take them out. He'll destroy them with fire. Loose end number two, okay, God, that's great. But you packed up and you left, Right? you left Jerusalem. And where did he go? Egypt. Babylon. Close. Because why did he go to Babylon? That's where his people were at. His people had been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, brought to the most evil city in the world. And God shows up because God wants to be with his people. So God, now the people know this. Well, hey, this is great. You know, we got Uh, restored land. We've got this new king coming and we have new hearts, a new spirit. This is awesome. But what about you? Where are you going to be? So in chapters 40 through 48, here's what God says. The king can return and the kingdom will come. And there are three movements to this. Movement one is the temple of Yahweh is prepared. Chapters 40 through 43. And then ministry to Yahweh is renewed, chapters 44 through 46. And the city of Yahweh is established, chapters 47 through 48. Okay? So chapters 40 through 43, here's what happens. Ezekiel meets this dude with a tape measure, essentially. And this dude with a tape measure, for a really long time, just starts to measure the temple. Just measures it. Okay? So... Um, I'll, I'll, read some of this. I'll read some because it's the only way to understand how much he measures. Verse 5, chapter 40. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. And the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand, his tape measure, was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a hand in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, And the height, one reed. Then he went into the gateway, facing east, going up its steps. And he measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. And the side rooms, one reed long. And one reed broad. And the space between the side rooms, five cubits. And the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner end, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits. And its jam, two cubits. And the vestibule of the gate, was at the inner end. And there were three side rooms at the other side of the east gate. The three were of the same size and the jams on either side were of the same size. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gateway, 13 cubits. And there was a barrier before the side rooms, one cubit on either side and the side rooms were six cubits on either side. Then he measured the gate from the ceiling of the one side room to the ceiling of the other, a breadth of 25 cubits. The openings faced each other. He measured also the vestibule, 20 cubits. And around the vestibule of the gateway was the court. And from the front of the gate at the entrance of the front of the inner vestibule at the gate was 50 cubits. And the gateway had windows all around, narrowing inwards toward the side rooms and toward their jams. And likewise, the vestibule had windows all around outside, and the jams were palm trees. He measures a lot. And he just keeps measuring. Chapter 40, chapter 41, chapter 42, chapter 43. He just measures and measures and measures and measures. Like, it's like watching a really bad slideshow of somebody's vacation, right? They're like, hey, here's a picture of me in a sunset. Oh, here's another picture of me in a sunset. Oh, wait, here's another picture of me. You can't really see me in this one, but check out that sunset, right? You ever been been to that slideshow? Okay, you've probably done one then. Don't do it anymore. It's kind of like that. You're just like, are you kidding? How much can you measure? So here's what I say. A picture is worth a thousand words. I have a slide of what the rest of this chapter is. That's what he measures, okay? That is this temple. That's this temple that's being prepared. Big, giant, huge temple with a massive, massive altar. So there it is. You can read the rest if you want to, but there's a reason for all this. Like all this detail, why all the detail? Well, look at chapter 43, verse one. This can go away now. Was that worth a thousand words? I could have kept reading just cubits and cubits and vestibles and doorways and archways. So here's why all the detail. Chapter 43, verse one. Then he, same dude, tape measure man. He led me to the gate. When you have a tape measure, you wanna measure everything, right? That's what this guy does. He's like my son, Myron. Whenever he has a tape measure, he is measuring everything. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Remember what happened in chapter 1 through 11? It departed to the east. Now, looking out the east gate, what happens? They're seeing that Ruach storm return. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chibar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of Yahweh entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. That's why all the detail. Dad's coming home. Father God is coming back home. I love that. If you get nothing else from tonight, get this, the faithfulness of our heavenly father. He does not abandon his kids. And it can be very hard to see that when you're in a refugee camp by a sewage canal outside of Babylon and you've just been, had the snot kicked out of you by Nebuchadnezzar. Very hard to see God's faithfulness in that moment. Very hard. It's very hard to see God's faithfulness when your marriage is on the rocks or your kids are not doing well or the money has run out or you're doubting him or your health is gone. It's very hard to see it, but that's when it's most important. I love the words of Jehoshaphat when he, he just thinks we're done. And in Second Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, he says this, I don't know what to do but my eyes are on you. That's the best thing you can do. When you're in a refugee camp, when your marriage is on the rocks, when your kids are not doing well, when there's financial problems, whatever, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. It's like Peter in the storm. Man, he did fine till what? He took his eyes off Jesus and he sank like a rock. Never, ever, ever forget the faithfulness of God. Never, Like I think every message should kind of be like a Christmas message or every message should kind of be like an Easter message. Like, hey, don't forget. Don't forget Jesus. When things seem darkest, when it seems impossible, when there is no hope, that's when you keep your eyes on him because look out, every miracle began with a problem. Look out, that's the time he will work. One of my favorite texts is Romans chapter seven because it just kind of goes to, oh man, I don't do what I want to do. And I, and I do the things I don't really want to do. And, and then there's just, just, who's going to save me from this body of death? This flesh is killing me. And then 725, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to save me from me? I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to thank me? Who's going to save me from Babylon or from a refugee camp or from all the doubt I have? Who's going to save me? I thank the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did for me on the cross and what he has done to me at salvation. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget the faithfulness of God. He'll come home. He's coming home. That's what this chapter says. It's brilliant. So you got this tour and then, then, Movement number two is the ministry to Yahweh. And you see this prince? It's in chapter 44, and I'll read a couple of verses of it. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And Yahweh said to me, "This gate shall remain shut, it shall not be open, and no one, no one shall enter by it, for Yahweh, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall remain shut, only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before Yahweh. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same. We're introduced to this prince. And he kind of shows up, chapter 46, kind of over and over. You, You get this kind of, this prince character. Who is this prince? It's a good guess, but he has sons and he's not allowed to be a priest. And we know this about Jesus. He was both prophet, priest, and king. So he's something else. So the conjecture is this, maybe it's King David. That is, when there's the renewal of this kingdom, the ruler at this time is King David. So this term, nasi, is used to refer to uh, the Davidic line early in Ezekiel. So that's possible. No one knows though. I have no idea who he is. It could be one of you in the kingdom. I mean, honestly, it could. I have no idea. Maybe it's one of you. That'd be awesome because I'll know you, (laughs) but he has power and he kind of rules. He's a really, really good ruler. He does things right. Okay. So that's his prince. And then we're introduced to the priests. Skip forward 44 verse 15. Now, before this, who has always been the high priests? The sons of Aaron. Okay. look, Look at this. But The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me shall come near to minister to me and they shall stand before me as a high priestly honor to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. There's a new priesthood. It's no longer Aaron's line. It's now the sons of Zadok. Because when all the other priests had apostatized and started offering sacrifices to idols, only the sons of Zadok remained faithful and said, we will not do that stuff. So because of their faithful service, they're now rewarded with this incredible honor. You will be rewarded. Do you know that? Read the parable of the talents. Based on how we live now, it's gonna echo into and throughout all eternity. So read what Jesus says there in Matthew 24 and 25. Read 1 Corinthians 15, 58. That your labor is not in vain. That when you work for the Lord, there is a reward. There's a reward. 1 Corinthians 3, the beam seat judgment. Not of judgment, not, hey, you're a sinner, but did you do wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones? These guys are rewarded. And then I love verse 17. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads. They shall not bind themselves with anything, verse 18, that causes sweat. No sweating here. Now, what does sweat mean? Well, it could mean work. What does it mean in the Bible? It's Genesis 3.19. Before, when Adam was in the garden and things were paradise, he would like drop a mango seed and boom, there would be this massive mango tree and he'd eat mangoes. Like it was super easy. But then after the curse, what does God say? It's Genesis 3.19. Okay, now with the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread until you die. That's the curse. No longer is it this easy, pop a seed in, now you're gonna sweat and die. <laughs> that's a bummer. So what God is saying here is, that's not the way as it is anymore. There's gonna be no sweat here. The curse has been lifted. It's not going to be that way anymore. And I personally believe inside the church, we're, we're supposed to be a little colony of that. That when it comes to ministry, there shouldn't be Sweat. We shouldn't have the wrong garments on. And I think too often what happens in churches, we see needs kind of as pastors, and then we're just kind of grabbing anybody and we're putting wool on them or Saul's armor on them, and we're guilting them into the wrong ministries. Ever been guilted into the wrong ministry where it's just sweat for you? Hey, we need help in the kids' wing, which we always do. <laughs> You're like, well, you know, maybe I could help with the kids down there, even though I hate kids you know, they really need help. And I heard this really good message on it. So, you know, I think I'll go down there and I'll help. So you go down there and you help and you, you get these kids in and they're all sick and they got snot all over you and, and they're not listening to you. And you're in there, you got fear and little kids are like dogs. They smell fear. They're like, yeah, substitute teacher. We're taking them out. Right? So you're like, oh, okay. And the whole thing is over finally. And you're trying to check the kids out when the kid just knocks you over the fence and just walks out and is like, yeah. And you're like, all right, see you later. Hopefully at another church. You go home, you get sick, and you're like, I hated that ministry. I didn't fit you. I found that out. Like, there was this middle school group that really needed help. So for a year, I helped out at this middle school group, and I got punched and kicked and bit, and, you know, it's middle schoolers. It was crazy. But I persevered for a year. I just said, I'll do this for a year. After a year, I quit. I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. I said, I don't even like middle schoolers. I am so out of here. It didn't fit me. I think we have to be honest with things. Like, that's Saul's armor for me. That's wool for me. It doesn't fit. We should find ministries where when you're reading the right, it's not going to be easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's always good. Man, that's just good. That was good. God used me. He flowed through me. That was beautiful. That was good. I'm not saying it's supposed to be easy, but man, ministry should be good, okay? So here's the big picture of what's happening. When the king returns, you have... Um, a temple. You have these, these preparations in the temple. Um, you, you have priests that are Zadok's. Uh, uh, here's my big picture on it. Not going into detail. When the king returns and sets up his kingdom, I don't care if you're mill or you are pre-mill or you are post-mill or the whole thing just makes you want to take an Advil. I don't care about that. Here's what you see across all those lines the kingdom is going to have a Jewish flavor to it because Jesus was Jewish. And the commandments of God are not grievous. They're good. Like I think about the Sabbath. And when we were in Israel, Charity and I were in Israel, one of the biggest things that I loved was the three times I watched Israelis actually engage in Sabbath. The whole place just shuts down. On Saturday. There's this little park kind of where where we walk by. There'd be all these families out there having picnics, playing soccer together. It was so relaxing. And I told you that Israel has the longest lifespan of any country. And they smoke and they drink and they have all the wrong habits and yet they live longer than anyone else. And the only thing that marks them different is they Sabbath. Because Jesus said, Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for, man, it's a gift to you. And I look at our weekends. Like it takes most people all of Monday to recover from their weekend. Like they get no work done that day. And everybody kind of just knows that it's a throwaway day because we're so rushed and we're so scheduled and we're so like exhausted. And God's saying, take a day and just be instead of do. And I think, man, that's brilliant. That's really brilliant. God in the Old Testament told his people, Three times a year, you set everything down, and you go to Jerusalem, and you party, and you celebrate, and you enjoy yourself. It's a command. It's in the law. God's like, you do this, or I will kill you. (laughs) Like, why did God have to make it a commandment? Because we'll find something else to do. We'll fiddle with our vacuum cleaner broken in our garage instead of going and enjoying ourselves. So God's like, I make it in a command. You go and you enjoy yourself at least three times a year. You get away, you unplug, you enjoy fellowship, you're around family and friends and you network and you remember that you are created in my image. You do that three extended times a year. I love that stuff. It's gonna be awesome. The kingdom will be awesome. Men. Saturday is an opportunity for you to do this. There's a ski trip, snowboard trip down at Shasta. There's a hiking trip down the Rogue River. Well, I hope there is. There might be a rafting trip or a drowning trip down the Rogue River. It keeps raining. But plug into one of these things, right? It takes intentionality to do this stuff. If you don't, man, days just sit, they just stack up on you. And you start wondering, why am I doing this? Why am I so wore out? Why? Well, because God designed you to be And not do sometimes. To just be, be human, be a person, be a friend, be a brother, be a sister, just be sometimes. That's gonna be part of this millennial time. It's awesome. And so, lastly, we come to this city. Chapter 47, verse 1. It's the city of Yahweh. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east from the temple face for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate. And led me around to the outside of the outer gates that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with the measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. That's a long way. And then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went, I saw on the bank of the river, very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the Eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the dead sea where the water flows into the sea the water will become fresh and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish for this water goes there that the waters of the Dead Sea may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes. It's this city and it has a river running right through it. I think God likes cities with rivers running right through them. I know I do. <laughs> Did you read on Monday, the Milken report? It was shocking. It was on KJ. Um, they're, they're a nonprofit group that ranks cities uh, based on the best cities to live in. So this year, grants pass for small cities. Guess what we ranked? Number eight. I could not believe that. I'm like, praise God, finally good news, right? I hear all this bad news. About, finally, some good news about Grand's Pass. We're not going to pot, praise God. This is awesome. So there's this river that goes through this city and it's living water. And the source of it is this temple of Yahweh where he's returned and everything that this water touches lives. Man, how many parallels can you make to Jesus from that? It's just Unbelievable. Jesus, I think, quotes this in John 7, 37. Living waters are gonna come out of you. Jesus goes into exile and returns again, right? And establishes his kingdom. He is the source of life. Whatever is cursed, if it touches Jesus, that curse is reversed. It's amazing. So then you see in verse 12, this should ring a bell. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fall, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Ring a bell? Yeah, Revelation 22 two. right? Ezekiel is looking forward to the same vision that John the Revelator gets on the island of Patmos. really incredible. So here's what you get. The rest of this, the land is divided up, given back to the tribes, very different division than what happened in Joshua, a new, better division, more equitable. Land always stays with the people. Like God is really concerned about land staying with families. It's an amazing thing. It's way cool. So there's always the family farm to return to. I love that idea. And then you have, at the end of this, the last verse, and this is what we'll end on, chapter 48, verse 35 says, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits and the name of the city from that time on shall be Yahweh is there. End of the book of Ezekiel. What a brilliant end. End. Ezekiel sees this city with this river, with fruitfulness, with palm trees, with beauty, with incredible stuff. It's full circle all the way back to the Garden of Eden, but it's even better because it's a city now. It's a garden city that's beautiful, and there's lots of people there, and it's incredible. It's the reunification of heaven and earth because Genesis 3 fractured the two, and they were no longer connected. And so God has been working to redeem the two and once again, bring heaven back into earth, which is what you see in Revelation 21 and 22, when new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and comes back to earth. And it says that God is there. That's the key. I'm there. Let me read for you Revelation 21, one through three. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. We'll talk about that in Genesis 1. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Praise God. The end is a garden city where we live with God for eternity what are we going to do? I don't think God's done being creative. I don't think the six days exhausted God's creativity. I think there is a universe full of creativity that God has now said to his people, partner with me in this thing. Partner with me. Remember I talked about the divine council, second Kings 22, where God says, Hey, this is what I want to do. What do you guys think? And, and there's all these ideas thrown out and God says, yeah, that's the one. I think that's gonna happen through eternity where we partner with God in this incredible way that he wanted in the garden. But humanity fractured that thing and he's now redeemed it, brought it full circle and there's this renewed earth and now we partner with God through eternity, ruling and reigning underneath our King of Kings for eternity. It's gonna be brilliant. When people ask me about like, what's heaven? I have one word, it's more. I don't care what you say or what you think or any book you've read, it's more. It's more than you could put your mind into. It's more than you can imagine. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard the wonderful things that God has in store for us. So Ezekiel is writing to people living in a refugee camp, outside of the most wicked city in the Bible, right alongside a sewage canal, And his answer for hope to them is this. There's a city and the name of that city is Yahweh is there. That's our hope. Do you know that? That's our hope. We get so focused on this thing right here, jobs, money, house, remodel, whatever it is, that we forget our destiny is to one day live in a city whose name is Yahweh is there. That gives me hope. That gives me hope when I see evil. That gives me hope when I hear stuff. That gives me hope. It gives me hope. One day, one day, we'll all live in a city whose name is Yahweh is there. And so, Jesus, we pray come quickly. And we pray that when we're here, we would occupy and we would share Jesus. And no matter how bad our situation is, feeling like exiles feeling like our world is crumbling. We pray that when we do not know what to do, our eyes would be upon you. We would be praying and seeking and asking and knocking at your throne of grace to receive help in our times of need. So may we go from here today encouraged that there is a shepherd king who gave everything to purchase us. That there is a land that's coming for us, a good land that's beautiful with trees and fruit and healing. And there is an opportunity for each of us to have brand new hearts and new spirits if we have never believed in Jesus. We can have that tonight by believing on you, our shepherd king. And may we know that our destiny is secure in your hand because you are the faithful one. Dad's coming home. The Father will not leave us, He will not forsake us. He has us in His hand and we can trust Him. And may we set our eyes firmly on that prize. And may we occupy well. May we push back against darkness. May we offer cups of cold water to children coats to people that are cold. And may we continually offer to them the hope that's only found in Jesus. May we do that, and may you empower us in that. And we ask this in your name. Amen.